Hello there! Do you fall within two standard deviations of the statistical norm for your musculoskeletal ales? Well, if so, come on down to Spooner, where we're happy to help you take care of all your needs. Statistical outlier to not apply. Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner. Welcome back to Therapist in Motion. This is Dan hosting once again. I am joined by Paul and K2. Hello, hello. Hello. We are going to continue down our series today of more research is needed. And as Paul alluded to in our lovely sales pitchy introduction, what we're really going to talk about today is kind of that blend of utilizing the power of the patient in front of you plus the evidence that is out there, right? As we've talked about, more research is needed previously in our other pods, you know, like being a good consumer of research, research, what does that mean? Does evidence matter? Does function matter? And where is that, where's that hybrid blend live? We took some time to analyze an opinion article and, and talk about the pros and the cons and the opportunities and realize that is truly an opinion article and realize where that lives on the hierarchy of, of literature. Not to say that it's not great to cause and create thought processes and stimulate discussions amongst your colleagues, but realize where that lives on the hierarchy. But also today, kind of where we want to go is, is to not lose the value of the patient that's in front of you and how that starts to create pattern recognition, which assists with your prognostication, which assists with your ability to educate the client, which assists with your ability to engage your mentor and ask a different level question to pull off of their pattern recognition, their body of knowledge, their understanding of the research to really put it all together. So first question, gentlemen, when you're interacting with whether it is a, a student physical therapist or somebody who has, you know, one, two, three years of clinical, clinical experience, how are you going about coaching them on the blend of the power of one in front of them plus what the body of literature has created as evidence for us? So... I try to have a discussion and help them understand that one, especially as an early and young therapist, they're not going to know everything. Like I want to encourage them to don't feel like you should know everything. The, the amount of research and literature and evidence that is out there combined with the amount of anecdotal experts that exist, there just isn't the time available to digest all of it. So first, don't be afraid if you don't know the answer, of course. Then when it comes down to it, we're trying to say, all right. How do we look at this patient that is in front of us? And I'm looking at literature always as an evidence-informed type of practice. Like, I want to know what literature states is the best option. I'm going to use that with my own experience. And if it's a younger therapist, I'm going to have to rely a little bit more on literature and the experiences of my CIs or my clinical instructors have respected, some of my classmates that I talk to and have different, you know, messaging groups and things that I'm going on with. I don't have as much to pull from, but I pull from what I can. It helps me form a hierarchy of where I think they're most likely to be successful. And that's that's kind of my key point there is that I don't feel like I ever 100% know how everyone's going to respond. Everyone's a little own scientific experiment for me. So I use my knowledge to say I hypothesize 
intervention set A is going to be the most beneficial, but I'm also ready with B and C might be things I need to go into if they're not quite there, not quite ready yet. And then I'm thinking about that and remembering that experience and trying to remember what I did with this person because the next time a, let's just say that this person's an external impingement of their shoulder, of their dominant arm, the next time an external impingement of the shoulder of a dominant arm comes in, it doesn't mean they're gonna be treated the same way or have the same physical presentation, but I can start building that body of experience to couple with my body of knowledge and evidence I have to go through what I think is the, the right way to take care of this person and the most likely way for them to respond appropriately to the interventions. That's great. And uh, for me, as a therapist, I think we feel uncomfortable when we are going to something, the area we don't know. So sometimes this literature supports some you know, uh, findings if we don't know much, sometimes we just rely on that solely instead of being open-minded for trying to seek more answers from the something, the area unknown, you know? So I like what you said, Paul, you know, definitely plan A, and maybe plan A, you can create that based on what you learned from school at the same time, what the literature said, but at the same time, Everybody responds this differently, so keep that in mind. Then within the session, even between the sessions, we're going to do assess and reassess of what you did. Then keep learning from the clients. Okay, so I'm going to ask a second question because I think you guys provided some great overarching things for our listeners to think about, whether they're in that phase in their uh, clinical journey or they're mentoring someone who's in that clinical journey or they're teaching students uh, about how to be comfortable, quote unquote, being uncomfortable because of some of the unknown, unknown that will exist. How do you handle a situation when the, the student, the therapist says, well, that's not supported in the literature? Why did you do that? That's not supported in literature. That's not in the literature. How do you go about helping them to realize um, the blend of the art and the science? Great question, Dan. It's not easy either, right? I mean, a lot of times, especially if it's a younger individual that has less experience to draw upon, they haven't had the circumstances where you have a person that looks textbook and smells textbook and fits every test and you try everything and they're giving you good effort and they're get, they're doing a good job, they're adherent to home exercises and it's not changing how you expect in any capacity. You start questioning <laughs> your own ability as a therapist. It happens to all of us, it has happened to all of us. Absolutely. It's something that occurs and it's a, it's a hard lesson to go through where it's like, I don't, I don't know where to go or what to do but you need some of that component to be like, all right, it's okay. I can think through what I need to have achieved for this patient. Okay, too. I made a great point a second ago answering kind of the general overarching question that I'm a big fan of is becoming comfortable being uncomfortable. You know, in therapy, I don't think there's a way I can definitively know every piece. I'm doing that constant assessment, reassessment to see how are they responding? Where are they going? Even if literature leads me a certain path, I'm going to start with that path and I'm going to start with what literature supports. But there's so much evidence out there. You can find something to support nearly anything if you try hard enough. 
you know, we talked about as an example before about like the rotator cuff as a specific position where it's the greatest recruiter. But we also have literature saying that the body is extremely specific and you should train things in the range of motion and the task specific you want to train it for. And then we also have literature that suggests that if you do like an isometric hold, you can get strength gains in about 40 degrees of the range of motion that you're within. So do I want to train the muscle at its strongest, greatest recruiting point? Do I want to train the muscle in the joint specific position? Need it? Do I want to chain, train it a little bit less than that and let the carryover happen? Because maybe the, the joint range I need was the range I had too much stress in the first place and was becoming painful for the patient. Literature supports every one of those three. Literature supports all of that. And yes, there might be literature to help put things into clinical prediction models and rules and things to follow for what's best evidence and best practice. And I fully support that. Brilliant people went through and created what is most likely to be beneficial. But that's my emphasis. Most, most likely. likely. You know, we had the, the starting point where we talked about two standard deviations from the norm. One of the things that always bothered me is I don't want to expect everything's an outlier. Yes, you can pick outliers out and I don't want to use them as the, oh, well, don't do that because you might have one person come through in the next 10 years of your career that doesn't fit within something. But there are plenty of people that don't fit within the, quote, perfect paradigm. There are plenty of people that don't fit within the perfect evidence-based progression. Or they fit, but the evidence doesn't have the specifics they need, and they start falling behind. You have to be creative, or you're not going to help that outlier. You're not going to help the person doesn't follow exactly as you expected. Or if you do help them, and you'll help them to some degree, it will be either not as much as you should or it's going to take you twice as long. We talk about time as money and also money is money as far as the cost of therapy. I'm not rushing anyone out, but I want to be respectful of, oh, well, literature says this. I'm going to keep beating my head against the same wall until I break through. When I say literature says this, it's literature is not wrong, but how can I make this more specific to you? Or what else am I seeing to assist and facilitate what literature is suggesting to help you tackle this specific issue more quickly so we can get on to the bigger issues at play and eventually to the function we're looking for? I always like listening to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So my answer would be, especially when my... Um, Interns, uh, physical therapy intern, tell me, hey, K2, that is not supported by literature. First step, I want to be sincere enough to take that their comment. And if I'm not aware of the literature, I want to understand. You know, so accept that their comment. But at the same time, we always say we want to be the better consumer of the literature. I want to dig into the literature, what actually that it said. Then if that is supporting, maybe contradicting to what I have done, I want to change my practice. I want to learn from it. I want to adapt. At the same time, we have to understand literature have limitations. Literature strategy cannot cover all the you know, clinical presentations out there. So we have to be open-minded. At the same time, I will self-reflect myself and what I told my student this would help, is that just based on my habit? Because I've been doing that all the time. That I, I want to believe that is helping. Versus maybe I learned from my test and retest through that patient care. Then I recognize the pattern. Then I'm just uh, sharing the wisdom to that, my students, you know. We all going through that. When we started, you know, we didn't have much experience. Then what we learned, we read was everything in a way, but 
with everything we can do and we try, then we can get the dead end. We could make any progression of clients. Now what? You know, I think lots of therapists with experience with those mindset of testing, retesting, learning from their own mistake and success will provide you so much wisdom. What wisdom does to the younger therapist is trying to help them grow quicker instead of going through lots of pains, failures in a way. So to answer your question, yes, uh, kind of big picture, but I always want to be open-minded about what they're saying. At the same time, I'm going to share with them something I learned this is when I was going through lots of pain in a way to help them out. So I want to highlight something that K2 said in both of his answers. And for our student listeners, for our younger experienced therapists or those therapists who are listening who might be stuck in a rut, is K2 said it twice. He said, assess, reassess. And that's often where I go from a supporting the literature is I may pick a validated assessment, closed chain ankle dorsiflexion, hip internal rotation in the 90-90 position, uh, shoulder, IR, ER, total arc of motion, right? And, and one of those are limited. That is validated in the literature. I am utilizing literature to help me. Mm-hmm. Now, my interventions might be literature supported. I may try those literature supported interventions first and then reassess. Did that change? No. Shoot. Why not? Okay. It did change. Awesome. File that in the memory bank. Even the one that didn't change, file that in the memory bank. Well, was it my technique? Was it the patient? Yada, yada, yada. But also, okay, I may do something from an intervention standpoint that isn't necessarily in the quote unquote literature But the patient is telling me through my subjective exam or my subjective follow-up, it hurts when I do this specifically. Huh. Wait. Okay. I'm going to go back to the validated assessment tool and now take the validated assessment tool plus the patient that's in front of me, that N of one, that remember, case studies are important in our development of evidence, even if you do not formally publish it, that case study is still, like K2 said, very valuable for you to build your your library, your catalog of what works and was what does not work. And, and so within that, I may pull from something a mentor told me. I may pull from a discussion I had with one of our younger therapists because they may have just told me, like K2 said, the latest and greatest research that just came out and I'm going to go try it. It may be something that I learned from a continuing education course and some of that is supported in literature. Some of that is the years that they've gone through trial and error and they can expedite my process. But if we don't go through the process of assess, intervene, and reassess, our body of self-literature is never going to get better, right? What that then does, I feel, and I want your guys' opinion on that, is it allows for a more specific question to be posed to the people that I work around or with or my mentors. And then I, because when that specific question is asked, it allows people to start 
filing through their catalog of like mind or like uh, presentation patients to say, well, have you tried this? Have you thought about this? Have you tried this? You know, did you look at this, you know, assessment that again is validated or it's something that I've helped. I've realized over time that this assessment with this type of presentation usually identifies some dysfunction that potentially might be hidden under X, Y, or Z um, compensation. So like what I kind of, uh, that's kind of my thought process on and, and what I really want to make sure our listeners hear from the wisdom that K2 just said about really the power of assess, intervene, reassess. Uh, so now kind of I, I want to flip this a little bit and say, let's talk about the research side of it and how do we take information and Paul kind of already kind of started to allude to this a little bit with, you know, the isometric hold and the arc of motion that it or arc of influence that that's going to have across that. How do we take the information that's out there and help our younger therapists understand it, know it, right? Sift through it in a logical, streamlined fashion, right? And, and I know this, this is one of those things that I have struggled with through my 12-year career. So I want to know from you guys, <laughs> how do you go about that? And when do you go to the literature to help find an answer for you? <laughs> <laughs> They're giving me lots of puzzled looks right now. K2 is looking up at the ceiling going, oh boy, Dan, that's one of those questions that's really going to make me think. <laughs> it's a great question. It's a very difficult question, right? Um, I think something that's important to discuss with it is almost an unfair question response. How much of your practice day-to-day with a patient, would you say percentage-wise, is clinical research supported and how much is not clinically research supported Ooh, i'm gonna think about that and one that's for a second. difficult because as i just said before i think i could probably find research to support about everything um but ignoring that a simple estimate like what comes to mind for you initially so i would say from an education standpoint the vast majority of the things are supported in literature duration for healing or science right duration to um, allow tissue healing d- duration for, you know, a, a week with no pain. If we're talking, you know, post-op total knee from a assessment standpoint, I would say probably the v- majority of the things are validated in research outside of maybe some dynamic lower extremity reaches intervention wise. I would say the vast majority of my interventions are a conglomeration of what the evidence says is best practice of manual therapy and tailored exercise. <laughs> um, so that's very global, but it, you know, it's resounding across the vast majority of body conditions. If we look at CPGs. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, from an education standpoint, I would say the vast majority of it is probably supported from the assessment standpoint, maybe 50 to 75% and then interventions because our CPGs lump it all together that manual therapy and exercise is best for most conditions. <laughs> That's right, where I'm going to go. I think you answered it perfectly. And yeah, it, it's hard to get down to specific manual interventions, therapeutic exercise interventions like that. That also gets really hard to have a solid double blinded research study to really yeah. support those things. Right. right. But I, I heard what I think I heard at least was a lot of what you do is very literature supported. And I feel too often 
too many therapists think that it's one or the other yeah. or like, oh, no, 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 no. Special tests no longer have a purpose. They don't need to do that. You need to know how they functionally move and what's happening. No, it all has a place and a purpose. I've had many times where I go over and people want to you know, have me assist with a patient's not making progress and they're going through, they can't turn their glutes on and they're going through the stuff and I'm like, well, have you tried a clamshell? And they look at me like, I expect you to like do some crazy manner technique where you're hanging from the rafters and you sacrifice a goat and some weird <laughs> thing happens. You pull this crazy technique that you learned in some class you had to hike a mountain to get to the top of with the flower that you give to the guru to t- teach you this technique. And half the time it's like, no, no, basics work just fine for most people. Like, let's start with the evidence-based basics. There's nothing wrong with that. Because one of the biggest challenges to actually get back to answering the question that Dan asked a while ago now Um is I feel like students too often become overwhelmed by the sheer amount of evidence that exists. And what I say is don't forget you've learned so much and the basics can do a lot of good for a lot of people. And I also am a firm believer you can't solve anything other than maybe BPV um, in one session, right? It's going to take a while to take care of things. So start with what you know is beneficial. Go to that closed chain dorsiflexion. Go to those statistically validated research components. I am a big fan of starting the foot for a lot of conditions to set the groundwork or the scapula, if we're talking like upper extremity, to set the groundwork and foundation of success. Get things going. I don't need crazy techniques and I don't think a lot of people start way off into that third, fourth standard deviation. They're pretty close to the norm for the starting point. They will progress different ways and that's when you might have to get more specific, more out there, more challenging and ask the bigger questions. Do you have time to take your patient through that? As you're doing what K2 said and Dan's highlighted of his amazingly is that test, retest, assess, reassess. Take a look at how they're doing. Are they progressing how you expect? And if not, don't change a thousand things in one day. I find too many students like, okay, I know this, 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 and this are all supported by literature. I tried the first one, didn't work. Tried the next one, didn't work. Tried the third one, I'm going to do that and see how that works in one day. Like, it, You have to take your time. Take a breath. Speak slowly. <laughs> <laughs> see if your patient can grasp onto things. Give them the appropriate time to respond for it. Don't just jump to the next, the next, the next, and look for every piece of literature that can exist. If you start with the basics, tackle the basics, try to make a change. I'm a big believer in the I want to see a change in two weeks, four sessions type of thing. If not, I'm going to go a different path. I'm going to look into further components there, but I'm not going to try to become overwhelmed and apply everything at once. I think too often we look for crazy stuff. And yes, some of the coolest things that I've done as far as patient outcomes revolve around treatments that are not validated by literature. I've had some really cool results like with external coccyx mobilizations and addressing massive headache issues that are chronically going or plantar fasciitis and stuff like that. They're like, that's really cool. Like, those are fun stories to have. But those stories are few and far between. Most people don't need that. Most yep. people need the basics and the simple. Start appropriately there and then build, especially as you said, you're going through and you're going to get that, that N of one. Each patient is your own little case study. And remember the things that worked. Remember what you did. See how you connected. See what made the breakthrough and use that to kind of build your hierarchy of where you want to go for that individual. Don't feel like everything is this brand new component. You have to start in a typically pretty similar place and then you will build into things that will be very unique and very individual, but you've garnered yourself a solid foundation of success to go into that and then it's kind of working as a team to figure out the complexities of their specific function. 
Awesome. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thank stop, you. I'll stop answering first. I feel like K2 is no, like, awesome. I like listen that. to me blabber on for a long time. Like, all right, now I got to get something else other than the stuff that Paul already stole from my answer. So. <laughs> Actually, I'm learning a lot from just listening to you. So, yeah. So, uh, let's say all the physical therapists coming out of school, they have different sets of kind of treatment technique already that is based on what you learned in the school. Maybe different schools emphasize differently. Different internship experience you had. So different therapies you worked on. So, but somewhat, we come up with some type of sets of, some a set of treatment. Maybe we can call it traditional treatment or whatever. So that can be a good starting point. And where the literature fit in, if you get that those are traditional treatment as a great starting point, maybe bring a literature to support what component of that treatment is actually supported by literature so that you can start putting more weight on, okay, this is actually works by literature, those kind of stuff. At the same time, we are not necessarily need to throw out that other treatment was successfully used in the past because it's not supported by literature, then keep doing that process, then we could fine-tune that your own, your own set of treatment. So that almost fine-tuning that. But at the same time, as you start treating your clients, you're going to start getting lots of clinical questions. You're trying to look for the answers in the literature. Well, literature has not caught up yet. So now, if it was not supported, you are not going to do it? No, you could, I believe. Um, Dan said perfectly. I like that. Instead of something when you believe and you, you learned, you tried, it didn't work. But that point, he created a hypothesis. He saw that some pattern, the symptom, then what if kind of creating hypothesis so that he understand the principle of the body, how the things respond, so that he created a hypothesis because of that, he created some strategies and created a technique, and he tried that. Then he actually tested beforehand, afterwards. Then he kind of checked his uh, um, effectiveness, his treatment, then building up his library. So we always say, you know, what we do, especially medicine, is a combination of science and art. That, well said. So literature definitely helps that science part, but those art component. It's huge as well. So I have a question for you, Dan. Oh boy. Um, I know, right? Be prepared. <laughs> so I, I love what you know what you're saying, K two, and I, I love the questions too. And a, a lot of them really good because I feel like it touches in some of the big struggles that, especially young therapists, but it can be any therapist that hasn't had to deal with certain varying patient populations across their career. So. What does the education look like for a therapist to have the confidence to kind of tackle some of that unknown? Because it, it's, I don't want to say it's easy for the three of us, but the three of us have enough experience and have done enough positive things. We can say we've proven to some degree we know something, right? <laughs> we, we've done yeah, it. Yeah. We've helped people. We've, to some degree, as long as it's not a hand patient, Dan's pretty well covered yeah, on everything. Maybe. <laughs> you know, we, we, we can at least draw back and think about all the people that we have helped. We have those amazing patient experiences to kind of assist with it. We, I see young therapists come out all the time with that value question, right? Like, God, you know, 
co-pays are going up, deductibles are high, am I worth 85, am I worth 95, worth $120? They feel like they have a hard time justifying that value. And I feel often, not that there's anything wrong with clinical prediction rules, and we said there's great value to them, but I also find that sometimes people seek excessive comfort in them. Because you can say, well, I did this, this, and this, and it tells me to do this, so I'm doing it. And you're taking away some of your requirements to figure it out and saying, I'm not at fault because I followed what I'm supposed to do. How do you help a therapist become comfortable to some degree, especially when you have a lot of experience to call back upon, starting with the foundation, but knowing when to break away and feeling like and understanding they're giving value to their patient when it might require something outside the norm of research? Uh, th that's actually mind-blowing that that's the direction you went with that question because that's basically the note that I wrote down was is was that it's like we've worked together and known each other for a really long time <laughs> um, but I think that kind of that's a great question because what a what a clinical prediction guide or clinical practice guide often forgets is the influence of the individual that is in front of the therapist and what I also think we forget, and one of you know, one of the people that uh, I admire, Mr. Chad Waits, often talks about how you ask questions when the patient comes back after a session. It's not just how you doing, how'd you feel, right? Like get into some meaty questions and dive deep into. Okay, great, you assessed. It was evidence supported. Awesome, you did an intervention because of. X, Y, and Z, whether it was evidence supported, it was your, it was something you learned in a, in, in a continuing education course. It was just what felt right. It was the gut reaction. It's, it's the direction the patient told me I needed it to go, whatever. And then you made a, and, and then you reassessed and saw that it made an improvement and then you progress their exercises. Right. And like you said, some of the, some of it is just like, get them moving, get some muscle firing patterns, get some motor control, get some stability, right? Like, but it's got to be specific to the patient. And then more importantly, to help further support what worked, what didn't is that next session of getting to a depth and a level of, of questioning to really hone if there was their appropriate carryover. Well, if there wasn't, well, why? Oh, you sat in the car for 16 hours over the weekend? Huh, no wonder you're back to where you were before, but you left feeling awesome. So it's it, like, that's kind of where I think it goes. And I think this also sets the stage for a future pod, FYI, that's coming on kind of the theory of science of exercise and working on this like benefit versus slightly overload versus excessive overload and kind of this threshold of success and how do you push that threshold of success and do you start the patient in the right place, which is kind of a little blue light special for something that's coming later in the year. But that's kind of where I go with that. It, it, whether it's sitting alongside you or your wife and we're having, you know, we've all been treating about the same duration and time and we're having that conversation or, and it's like, oh my gosh, I forgot about that. Or it's with the person who sits on the other side of me who has been practicing for a whopping one month under his own license and still realizing that that the assess, intervene, reassess concept, it, we should always have at the forefront of our mind. But also with the literature component, the literature can't always ad, uh, allow for the individual uniquenesses of each and every patient. It is simply not possible. And 
I can't have the young therapist or the seasoned therapist forget that power of the unique individual and how do they adapt and modify based on that unique individual in front of them? That's a great question, Paul. So definitely, I'm just looking back when I was a student. Definitely, I wanted to have some specific guideline so that at least I can gain some confidence on something was actually working. So that that time, maybe things like, seems like protocol or some type of method. I know some success stories out there, so I could follow. But at the same time, danger of just pulling, just believing only one thing and not looking at other stuff, that means not open-minded. You're gonna actually make yourself, your brain paralyzed because you just believe one thing, it should work. And this is the only way. If so, when you run into the case, your patient is not responding. Next question is, are you failing your client? Or are you gonna fail yourself not helping that client? So, so then, now ask your question. Oh crap, I tried everything what we, I believed in. I learned this should work. Now going to unknown zone. Then you can come up with some hypothesis again, then try something in the dark, or I think you can utilize that opportunity to gain wisdom from people around you, from your mentors. You don't have to invent a wheel. So that I'd love to get the good uh, mentors. Then I need to come up with specific great question so that I can extract the great answers from my mentors. Then I'm gonna utilize that to my practice. Then by repeating that, probably I can start recognizing some patterns, how my mentors made a success. So that may be a thought process, maybe how you look at things or how you assess things. Then based on the pattern, maybe I can start applying to myself. Then by creating that success, your success rate is gonna increase so that then you know your confidence level is going up. At the same time, when I'm looking back myself, uh, first year out of PT school, I can say, I wish I know better, <laughs> you know? But question I can ask for myself that time was, did I try everything I could have done yeah. with the right intention? If answer is yes, that is your best. It's okay, you know? Then, yeah, definitely your session has certain value to it. But again, medicine, healthcare system, there's no absolute one answers. They come to you because they want to get better too, but they are requesting you to give me your best effort to help me out. Somewhat we have to be kind to ourselves. You know, we don't know everything, but if within our powers, great intention, we did everything to the clients, then if you are able to answer to yourself yes to that question, I think that session is worthwhile. 
I love that. I love both those answers. And I want to highlight something both of you said. Dan, you talked about you know, working with me, my wife, and, and you, you know, alongside each other, and how many times we talk about different things and learn from that. And KT, you spoke very nicely and very eloquently about having your mentors around you or having a clinic near you that supports that. And that is one of the things when I, especially if I'm at a PT school working with students who have not graduated yet, or if I have a student coming through, sometimes I get the questions of like, what interview questions should I ask? And one of the things I'd like to go to is talking about mentorship, because I feel like all too often, especially young therapists, they ask for mentorship, ask for mentorship, what's your mentorship program? They want to like the formalized mentorship, how often are we meeting? They miss the power of the in-betweens, that the power of that each individual is a case study to learn from and who can I talk to around me? And I'm more interested in when you go interview, go to a place where you can go into the clinic and meet all the people that are there and talk to everyone, ask how often do you guys talk about patients? How often do you exchange ideas? How often do you work together? And working together doesn't mean you share patients, you certainly can, but it means how frequently are conversations being had to benefit everyone? Because that's some of the best learning you can possibly have right there that isn't literature-based. But I can guarantee you I've learned more by being lucky to work in a big clinic you know, at Spooner First in Australia and over in Scottsdale with a lot of very good therapists. And I've probably learned more from them than I have from the summation of all the research articles and courses I've taken in my entire life, just picking brains and seeing what they think. And sometimes even like, I don't even know. What about that? That looks weird. Cool. Let's go dig into it and see what happens type of thing. Another thing, and you'll okay, you spoke very nicely to value. And Dan, I want you to speak on a briefly on a research study you'd mentioned this morning. Shout out to Dr. Gail Jensen. Um, you know, when we look at value too, something I think we sometimes forget is the power of listening to our patient. Dan, you talked about Chad and the communication and conversation you have there, but especially one of the benefits we have in physical and occupational therapy and, and speech debt degree, not a lot of healthcare providers have the amount of time we have with each patient, have the amount of opportunities to see them as frequently and as many times per week as we do, and the ability to make a connection. So especially when it comes to valuing time, not that we can rely everything on being their like friend, but the power of listening to someone and being the healthcare provider that's going to say, okay, let's talk. What are you feeling? Why are you feeling it? How do you feel about that? What can we do? What are your frustrations? What are your barriers? What are your questions? What is not answered? It's amazing how much you can help a patient going to that mental aspect of things that gives them more value than any exercise prescription intervention could possibly give and how that's something that you might not know what to do with your patient and yes there's a huge skill to how to connect to patients but i guarantee you you can always give a hundred and however many percentages over 100 you think is appropriate percent for listening and connecting to your patient to give them value to their experience with you yeah i, I mean in that article, I think it's from 2000, Dr. Jensen and her colleagues talk about how to develop or what the characteristics were of becoming an expert level practitioner within the field of physical therapy. And one of the things that they came back to was time, right? Time, listening, time, practicing, time, researching, time, and mentorship, right? Like time was a component of it. But they consistently came back to the power of listening. And I also think about the power of listening is how well are you asking questions and following their lead and 
getting a little deeper. And that's, I think when, when you go back to the value, even with some of our young, younger therapists or newer therapists and like, wait, am I really worth this much? That's where we can go back and say, yes, you are because you have, and you get the time to spend with your patients to be able to dive deeper than most healthcare practitioners have the opportunity to do. And at that point, you may determine, yeah, I'm the best person to help this person. I have done, I know the path to take. I can try all of these things. 97% of the things I just tried are validated and supported in the research that's out there. I think that you will be better in six weeks, right? And they have the ability to make that connection. They also then have the opposite that they can go because of the time that they get to spend with their patients. They can say, you know what? Actually, I think you do need to see my expert level colleague, or you need to go see this individual that is outside of our you know, company or network. And here's why. And it might be for the first time ever that that patient was heard and listened to. And now they've gone to the right direction because we have taken the opportunity and get the opportunity to make that connection and ask those questions. Yes, it's still going to come back to skill, pattern recognition, but it can start with active engagement and active listening, which we all know back in school, we all heard about, you need to be an active listener and, and actively engage in that and all of those things, but it is legitimately true. And that's, again, something I will go back to with young therapists is when in doubt, sit down and ask more questions get deeper than just how did you feel after the last session and i love it because especially great talk and active listening it's not just anecdotal the literature Literature supports supports it (laughs) all right well i think we've had a great conversation today um thank you gentlemen for kind of participating in this and kind of going we went a a lot of different routes which is okay hopefully our, our listeners can can see some nuggets to pull out of there about you know the power of listening respecting that the individuality of each unique patient that it's still going to correlate to the literature, but also not everything that you encounter will be or is possible to be done in the literature setting. And that is okay. That that the art and the blend of what we do and the science is there and it's cool. (laughs) And we have the unique ability to do that. So gentlemen, I very much appreciate you guys, your expertise, your wisdom. I learned a ton during this. Um, So thank you. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, feedback, suggestion, please do not hesitate to reach out to us at therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app.